0: So welcome to the Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast, and today I have a very special guest. I have David Heim smith who uh, puts out some really amazing books. I mean, I buy a lot of uh, books on occultism and spirituality and what have you, but these books are very, very top-notch, so anybody who's interested in these sort of topics, um, I definitely recommend checking out his books. But uh, instead of me giving a long introduction, uh, can you please introduce yourself and sort of how you got into um since you you focus on a lot of this uh on uh, sort of Jewish Kabbalah, but with a different spin i guess you would say it's not a typical uh emanationist sort of view right so maybe you can introduce yourself and how you uh got into the uh, kabbalah in general and then also a little bit about your background and as i heard that you also are a, a practice like vajrayana buddhism and it's uh you're not just specifically on one track i guess you would say you have a unique background so yeah.
1: Okay. I'm um, David Hyam Smith, and I am a practitioner and esoteric cartographer. That's a person who makes esoteric diagrams. And as a result of my diagramming, I started writing. Never had an intention to be a writer. But as the writing accumulated with the diagrams, I should say co-emergently with them, I started putting out books of writing and diagrams in combination with each other uh, around the year um, 2010, whereas I had been making these esoteric diagrams for about three or four years previous to that, no writing, just making diagrams. Uh, I was an artist um, growing up in the 70s and 80s in New York City. And I decided to um, stop doing that around um, 1996 when I had my last uh, show of that type. And between 1996 and 2006, I didn't do anything like that. I just essentially trained in the systems that I would eventually be writing and diagramming about or well, unbeknownst to me, I had no intention of becoming an artist again or, a, or a, a maker of diagrams or a writer or anything like that. I thought I just wanted to be a practitioner. So I spent 10 years training in these systems. And the systems break down into a couple of types. And their integration is kind of unusual and interesting. I started out in the Western esoteric tradition, uh, hermetic, Kabbalist, interested in alchemy, just like everybody else.
0: Right? <laughs> so so um, the mainstream occultist, I guess you would say, yeah. although occultism is not necessarily mainstream, but sort of the popular end of the pool or, you know? Usually. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I was in um, a few of the very popular teaching orders that disseminate the material. I was in a Golden Dawn offshoot group. Uh, I was in the OTO for, for five minutes. <laughs> and, um, and and a couple of other groups too, but they were all basically speaking that language. And um, if you know what that language is, it sort of doesn't matter that much which group we're talking about. We're talking about uh, a set of axioms that don't change a whole hell of a lot. Although uh, something like the OTO and, and the work of Crowley, they, they make a big deal about their differences with their predecessors. The differences aren't that great. Mm -hmm. it's still speaking a common language with a few modifications that you could look at as saying there's a a certain view of phenomena and a certain view of how phenomena is articulated with the sphere on the tree of life Mm -hmm. that doesn't change very Mm -hmm. much at all Mm -hmm. um beyond that the methodologies are concordant with whatever they're doing but the basis of the vocabulary It once you learn it is usually never forgotten and you just modify it, right? So I had learned that vocabulary um, throughout my um, 20s and 30s. And that's back, you know, while I was still an artist and whatnot, and even during my training period. And what happened eventually is that I hit a wall with it. I became Uh, well, I don't want to say dissatisfied, but I I, um, encountered a set of limitations that the system itself wasn't going to resolve for me. And the way that I decided to get through this wall was to go to the first sources, the first sources of that material. Because if you're talking about Hermetic Kabbalah, you're talking about Renaissance Kabbalists who had adopted from Jewish sources the material that they got uh, through people, ultimately, who disseminated it like Rosenroth and and and, and, and Kersher, Athanasius Kersher, uh, and further back in a different form to Pico and um, all you know, Ficino and, and Agrippa and all that. So if those are your sources, you gotta to go to those sources. And then once you see what the sources for those sources are, which are essentially Zohar, Sefer Yetzirah, um, the the roots of what became 17th century alchemy, um, as well as oral traditions, which people who work exclusively from books don't even know that they exist, but they do. Um, They exist in various places and various types. So I studied those systems trying to get through the wall that I hit when the limitations arose in my own practice. And what I found was that there were these gaps in the system that were not being addressed. And the main gap was the question of what Gnostic realization actually means to the system, Mm. because once you start making magic your primary interest, Mm -hmm. it seems that there is a real um, issue between those who are interested in manipulating their circumstance, internal and external circumstance, and those who are interested in Gnosis. Sometimes these concerns overlap. Sometimes they don't. When they overlap, it would be prudent to see the connection between those two agendas. And if there is a serious stressing of Gnostic realization as as a main concern, ultimately you're gonna see that as the basis for the magic that you practice, whatever it is. If that basis is a valid one and certain people will disagree with this view, Right. Mm -hmm. But if that basis is a valid one, then the gnosis would be um, imminently more important than uh, the magical techniques and tools and methodologies because it's dependent upon it. So I went in that direction of saying that whatever I do with the esoteric sciences and arts, whatever form that they might take, the basis of it is Gnostic realization. So if I don't pursue that effectively, the rest of this stuff will just blow away in the wind.
2: Mm,
1: okay. Right. So right. in service of this, I saw that the systems uh, that, I, that I was getting through books and teaching orders mm-hmm. were incapable of giving me what I want. And moreover, they didn't seem particularly interested in the question of Gnostic realization, much of the time. They were interested in other things like acquiring powers and <laughs> effectively manipulating circumstances. And well, yeah, it's boring adolescent distractions. And uh-huh. in, in my opinion, uh-huh. those who will disagree with me will disagree with me, but that's where I'm at. So, um, having had that background, I um, started working with a teacher, uh, a teacher of what is essentially a form of alchemy. Mm -hmm. And this form is, I don't want to say derived from, but is uh, concordant with Vajrayana practice. But I don't want to say Vajrayana Buddhism in the classic sense, because it has really nothing to do with Tibet. Vajrayana, people think it, they call it Tibetan Buddhism. It entered Tibet from elsewhere, mm-hmm. so it, it is not Tibetan. The Tibetans became the custodians of it at a certain point, right? But right. it it uh, it was born in, in the Swat Valley, which is right um, between the territory uh, between Pakistan and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and it traveled down through Iran and ultimately inhabited um, much of, uh, of the Indian subcontinent at one time, right. and even entered into the Middle East. It certainly was in Azerbaijan, it was certainly in um, Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. And once the um, the Islamic um, invasion mm-hmm. uh, usurped that territory, it disappeared from those areas. And the only place where it was left was Tibet. So while in Tibet, it mixed with various other um, uh, uh, ways of presenting the material, and it became Tibetanized and ultimately became, for the most part, a monastic system. Mm -hmm. But the earlier forms of Vajrayana were non-monastic and were much more like the Western esoteric tradition. Mm in many ways so it's it's an obvious blend with the western necessary so it's not like you're hopping from east to west those borders Mm -hmm. do not exist that's an artificial imposition of revisionist history right right so when i started working with this particular teacher and this particular community of practitioners Mm -hmm. i was asked to do because of my background some reconnaissance work Mm -hmm. and that involved relearning the kabbalistic system that i already knew pretty well because the version of it that i had received was this um stunted um somewhat retarded version that became uh uh popular in uh england and um And America in the 20th century, like by the time you get to 20th century Hermetic Kabbalah, it it had morphed so severely from its Mm. sources that it became its own thing. Right. Mm. So if you're if you're working from from books, you know, you know, post Golden Dawn, you're getting a certain version. You can't pretend that that's Renaissance Hermetic Hermeticism anymore. Sure, sure. So, so I was asked to re revisit. Now, mm-hmm. keep in mind, I was asked to revisit these things while I was still being trained in that system. Okay, right? this so, is by
0: your uh, your Vajrayana instructor teacher. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One thing, maybe to backtrack a little bit, which I'm sure that I'm, I'm curious, but probably the listeners are curious too. How did you find your teacher? What was that process like, or Um, was it a coincidence? Was it due to you seeking out, were you intentionally seeking out this teacher?
1: No. Mm -hmm. Um, I found the teacher because uh, back in the old days, I made a living by giving lectures on esoteric topics. So I was talking all over the place, you know, and um, I gave a lot of lectures and that brought me to a lot of places. And I met a lot of people and Uh most of them were garden variety and then I stumbled upon somebody during one of my lecture gigs mm-hmm. that was really unusual mm-hmm. and he you know this guy looks like an ordinary guy see the people who are really doing serious work they don't look weird and they don't call attention <laughs> to themselves you know yeah. like my community of practitioners they they look like rednecks <laughs> you know, they, they don't look like, you know, special people. They don't look like right. special occultists. Mm-hmm. So I met this guy and he's like, yeah, why don't we go over this mm-hmm. guy Garen's house and we'll talk a little bit. And you could tell me what you're doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the first time I met with him, I took all, you know, all these. Um, uh, uh, well, I guess they're, they're kind of scrolls. They're, they're mm-hmm. painted diagrams of the tree of life. And I laid them all out and I started talking about it. And then he said just one or two things that were the right things. And it led me to the conclusion that this guy was at the very minimum, far more advanced than anybody that I'd met before. Mm -hmm. And then he proceeded to prove that to me, you Mm -hmm. know, to get me interested. And once I became interested, I was invited to, um, to join what is essentially an extended family which I've remained part of for almost 25 years. Mm -hmm. So during that 25 years, picking up where I left off, I was asked to go back to Brooklyn and relearn Kabbalah um, with Jews. Okay. And I did. um, I wore a black hat and became, uh, lived a Hasidic life and, you know, immersed myself in that um, and investigated it. In particular, not only, uh, well, a couple of different things, three different things uh, to be specific about it. One is technical Kabbalah in the Lurianic style, which is far and away the most common in the Jewish world. The other um, is Hasidus, which is the mysticism of Hasidic masters who adapted technical Kabbalah, Lurianic style Kabbalah. Very little content of the earlier schools, mm-hmm. and they made a mysticism out of it in the 17th and 18th centuries.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The one, the lineage that was particularly interesting to me was the lineage of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. Okay, so I had a Breslov teacher who is a very, very great man, mm-hmm. written a lot of books, studied with him every single day for about 10 years. Wow, and eventually studied with another teacher who introduced me to the earlier schools, mm-hmm. in particular, the schools of the 13th century. And I'm not talking here about Abu Lafia. People generally think that I have a background in that and I don't. The school that I'm interested in, the primary one, is called the Iyun school. Okay. Uh, or the Iyun circle, it's sometimes called. And the primary text of that school is called the Fountain of Wisdom. Mm -hmm. that I just recently wrote a commentary on and published Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so after immersion in the deeper uh, sources and different perspectives of Kabbalah which have very different views like the view of Hasidus is very different from the view of technical Lurianic Kabbalah in the mainstream of that current which Mm -hmm. is again very different from the iyun school, right? So so I digested these various views. And if you want to combine them into a general Kabbalistic um, continuum, you could say that now there are three streams
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, running together. There's the stream of genuine, authentic Kabbalah from real living lineages. There's mm-hmm. this tantric methodology of alchemy that I'm learning. And then there's the Western esoteric hermetic Kabbalah that I started out with Mm -hmm. so these are not separate activities Mm -hmm. the place where they touch and run together is the place where I would eventually be doing my work I'm not making a synthesis of them Mm -hmm. they naturally connect at certain points and the natural points of intersection are of interest to me and that's where my work actually started okay
0: Okay. So the uh, fountain of wisdom, as you mentioned, you recently put out a book on it with a, uh, a brand new translation, I believe it's uh, yeah. translated from Aramaic, I believe. But I think that uh, most listeners might not be as familiar with this specific book, like, even for people getting more into the uh, Jewish side of Kabbalah, the Zohar and um, things along those lines are more popular. What makes this book stand out? Or what's the uh, you know, what are, what are some big differences between the Fountain of Wisdom and some other uh, Kabbalistic texts?
1: The Fountain of Wisdom has about as much to do with uh, normative Kabbalah as a fish has to do with a bird. <laughs> you know, there's, there's almost no connection whatsoever. Mm-hmm. There is some, but almost none. And it doesn't use the sphero, it doesn't use the tree of life, it doesn't use the worlds, it doesn't use the levels of the soul, it doesn't use any of the familiar stuff mm-hmm. that occultists would be familiar with at all. Mm. So it speaks its own language, and it's a crazy language. Mm. It's a language that is not written to make any sense whatsoever. It is a language of psychoetheric symbology, where you immerse in uh, symbols that represent sensations that develop in practice. And if you follow the breadcrumb trail of those sensations and investigate them, they lead to areas that we could only call mental textures, right? Mental texturing. And through the psychoetheric suggestion of the way the symbols are implanted, if you learn the um, discipline of mystical contemplation in a formal way, which has to come from elsewhere because the text doesn't supply that at all. So if you're coming with a set of skills that have been developed through um, concentrated awareness and meditative stability, You could take the suggestion of the symbol base, the symbol vocabulary, Mm -hmm. and actually access these territories and pick up the hints that are woven in, which are nonlinear. It doesn't see the fountain of wisdom really frustrates people because you can't (laughs) read it
2: Mm -hmm.
1: from beginning to end like a linear narrative. Mm -hmm. There is no linear narrative Mm -hmm. in the book at all. Wow, it's it is a totally nonlinear um, set of shuffled symbols, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And that's for a very good reason. It's because if you don't take the shuffling apart through your own practice, mm-hmm. it will not be of value to you. Mm-hmm. So the text forces you to do it. And basically says, if you don't figure out a way to do it, the door's closed. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So the text will not help you in that process. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. The text doesn't want you inside of it. The text doesn't like you. <laughs> right? Right. So the, so it's, it's obviously uh, for good reason that this has not been a very popular text or way of working throughout the, since the 13th century. I mean, almost nobody touched it, right? Okay. So, but there there are,
0: um, oh, sorry, sorry to- No, go ahead, go ahead. There are uh, oral traditions uh, of people working this text and um, teaching it. I'm not talking about in terms of writing, but in terms of schools that sort of pass down um, uh, teachings based on the text. Or is that not a, not necessarily? I think
1: I'll put it to you this way: the the oral teachings that relate to this text
2: mm-hmm.
1: might still be attached to the text, but they're in other areas. You you there is no lineage that uses this text in this way. Mm-hmm. However, there are oral traditions that relate to the material very very deeply and actually unlock it. But you have to find them through other means, right? And that's the tricky part because in order to get the um, what oh, the base of practice uh, under your belt that is necessary to do that, you would have to go into areas that you would never think in a million years would be relevant, right? But they're there, they're, this has not disappeared but you won't find a lineage teaching this stuff, right, at all. There's only two people that I know of that teach it um, in the world right now, Uh, and I'm one of them. And the other guy is an Orthodox rabbi in Jerusalem. Um, But, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know everything. So there could be, you know, a hundred people like that, unbeknownst to me, but I never found it. Sure, sure. So the thing is that the methodologies um, of mystical contemplation that work with this stuff exist in a few different styles of practice and in quite a few lineages. There are Sufi versions of it that work quite well. There are Vajrayana versions of it that work quite well, um, but nothing in Western occultism. Hmm. Because like I started out saying, it very often appears as the Western occultism is not interested Mm -hmm. in those concerns Mm -hmm. so part of my work is the idea of bringing those concerns to the symbol system of western esotericism and Mm -hmm. putting it back where i feel that it belongs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right so that's my work my my work is establishing the benefit of all this stuff in a symbol system Mm -hmm. which seems devoid of it Mm
0: -hmm. um one could say you're talking about the golden dawn. I noticed that one difference I'm not in the AA or the golden dawn or anything like that, but uh, <clears throat> one difference is looking through Crowley's material. He sort of imported yoga, right? He, he brought in like mysticism and yoga. When you read his texts talking about pranayama and things that the golden dawn weren't really, uh, he, cause he did travel through the East through India and I think Bhutan and places like that. Right. So to a degree, you see more of this sort of emphasis on mysticism in Crowley's material, but as you mentioned, sort of a hodgepodge uh, mixed with sort of, I don't know, you'd say practical magic and other, other things all mixed up where it's not clear what the main goal is perhaps for many people, right? Like it's not primarily only, you know, Gnostic uh, revelation or experience or illumination, right? Is that how you see it?
1: I think in order for uh, this style of practice to be effective, Mm -hmm. You have to work directly with somebody who has some realization Mm -hmm. and it's a living oral tradition. And essentially what happens is that somebody passes their realization to you. And if you are sufficiently able to practice, you could develop the seed of that realization and, you know, pass it to somebody else. And it's a living lineage, living oral tradition. That's how it always has been, Mm -hmm. right? So in order for it to work, there would have to be realization, actual living realization in a lineage, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, whatever Crowley claimed, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not here to bash him. Mm -hmm. but when I was, uh, in the OTO, I didn't see any evidence of anybody who had any realization whatsoever, you know? So that just seems like a dead end to me. I could be, you know, I'm not here to comment on what someone else is doing. What I'm doing is working with the realization of those who have taught me. Mm -hmm. And I've had the benefit and the good fortune of having some really incredible teachers, you know, um, my main teacher, who is essentially a, a Vajrayana and Zogchen master, and my teachers in the Jewish world um, have been, I'm pretty fortunate to to have not only met these guys, but um, that they would uh, concede to teach me over long periods of time, mm-hmm. you know, so I lucked out that, Right. that that there was actual living gnosis that proved itself to me and I followed up on it. Right. Uh, So that's the way it works. The way it works in an oral tradition, you can't put it in a book, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a living thing. It's a thing that has to be the result not only of having connected with it, but having the wherewithal to practice it through and follow up on it that's the main thing. If you, if you don't follow up on it and and you connect it, it doesn't do anything. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. So the the basis of it is you look at human habituation, which Mm -hmm. is the basis of how the human realm Mm -hmm. perceives phenomena, the way that the human realm perceives phenomena can be divided into five basic categories. Um, the five basic categories um, shape every instance that is perceived, even if the instances don't relate to one of the five categories. There is an assumption of substance and substantiality that there is this implicit belief amongst human beings that matter exists as separate solid bits, right? And if you accept substantiality in that way, you are accepting the reification, the making solid, and the division of everything, of every unit that is perceived.
0: Right, those, I, think, I think in one of your books, or in this book here, you call it, I forgot it, if it's Avira and Hewley, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, you mentioned- Yeah,
2: well, that,
1: the, yeah. those are ways of addressing the ground of phenomena, Okay. Right? If there is reification and division, uh, the ground of phenomena, which is, can be called the Avira, could be called Avir Kadmon, or it could be called the Or en sof, which is a term mm-hmm. that your listeners would be familiar with. If, it, if you reify and divide it, the term Hayuli is used. That's mm-hmm. just simply the basis of the habit field. Mm-hmm. Like when, the, when a human mind does its habitual thing on phenomena, the basis of it, it we call Hayuli. That's a term from Hasidus. It's actually from the work of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov.
0: So it's sort of of compartmentalizing everything and labeling everything and that that process, yes.
1: Yeah, it's the making of things Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. of an open-ended scenario, Mm -hmm. right? Where every, so so for example, if you believe in substantiality, Mm -hmm. right? You treat your thoughts and emotions that way as Mm -hmm. if they were things you impute identity onto a mental conception of Mm -hmm. some thing and believe that it's real. And the irony is we, we do this with ourselves. (laughs) Like I am the perceiving subject, but Mm -hmm. I turn my own identity into an object Mm -hmm. for me to grasp. So I become a thing called my own identity for myself to think about, to identify with. How crazy is that? Right? (laughs) Right. So, so every, thought and emotion and sensory impulse and philosophical idea or abstraction becomes a thing if you believe in substance, mm-hmm. right? So if you believe in substance, the next step is to place it somewhere, mm-hmm. right? There is a thing. Where is the thing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? That mm-hmm. you you put it in a dimension. Mm-hmm. In other words, you put it in a place in, re- in relation to the uh, implied other places where it could be this place as opposed to that place. That's what a dimension is built from. So if you if you believe in something, substantiality, you place it somewhere. Dimensionality. Then the next step is as it moves, you try to calibrate the motion, and we call that the dimension of time. Mm-hmm. So if you believe in something, you put it in space time, right? Dimension and temporal coordinate points. If you do that, you've formed a mental conception. So you have substantiality, dimensionality, temporality, and conceptuality. You can conceive of the thing somewhere at some time. Mm -hmm. Human beings can't stop doing this. That's what produces the habit field. The entire mystical tradition is based on a desire to undermine this fabrication of limitations and coordinate points Mm -hmm. to understand something far deeper, which is the actual essential nature of reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you don't resist the habit field, you Mm -hmm. will fall into it over and over and over and you won't even know that you're doing it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the training that is necessary to be able to practice is the ability to break through the the rock solid habituation of our impulses that we don't choose we're born that way Right. And being able to see it for what it is and break through it is a huge, huge, huge task and requires just not only enormous effort, but enormous good fortune in -hmm. being able because you have to see someone else doing that. Right. Sure. So if you meet somebody who's able to do that and they could demonstrate it to you and you think at that point that it's indeed possible. Mm -hmm. for yourself well now you have something to go on because there's a living representation of it in somebody else without that it would be impossible
2: Mm
1: -hmm. like it's impossible to get it from a book it's impossible to get it from hearsay and it's impossible Mm -hmm. to get it unless it has been realized so Mm -hmm. unless somebody has realized it and you meet them
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it ain't gonna happen
0: right you, you use the term uh, mystical contemplation, and I'm sure a lot of people think of contemplation as, so you're saying the goal is to go beyond the conceptual mind and to sort of blast through that, but you also say, you use the term mystical contemplation, so maybe you can define that. What is that process? What is that method? Because a lot of people might think, isn't contemplation thinking about concepts, and isn't that what you're saying? we Are we using concepts to overcome our conceptual mind?
1: Well, contemplation not only includes thinking, but it also includes feeling, Mm -hmm. and it also includes felt impressions, and then whatever comes through the sense fields, right? So you got five sense fields, right? And you don't have to really think intellectually about your sense data, you're just talking about perceiving at that point. So contemplation is more about perceiving than just thinking. Thinking is a type of perception, just like feeling is a type of perception. So it's not necessarily about thinking or feeling or seeing or smelling or hearing, it is about the basis of perceiving itself and how it operates.
0: So where you rest
1: the awareness or where the focus is, is put on perhaps? Yes, and then the question is, what is actually being aware? what knows this right that's the main question Mm -hmm. um well there's two basic questions what knows it and what is being known Mm -hmm. right what is it that is being known and what knows it Mm -hmm. that's the question Mm -hmm. um essentially what knows is awareness and what is known we just call appearance Mm -hmm. but when we use the term appearance we're talking about whatever appears in an existential sense we're not mm-hmm. talking about you know just the visual field mm-hmm. what appears could be a felt sensation could be an intellectual idea it mm-hmm. could be something you hear it could be something you taste or touch mm-hmm. but we use the term appearance because the symbol system has a bias towards a visionary language mm-hmm. so very often the descriptions of what is being perceived and what is perceiving are stated in terms of a vision of symbols. And -hmm. that's how the symbols come to us, that we visualize them. And it's actually very close to the way that the mind works on an innate level, like the way we dream. Sure, Uh, through symbols, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. through visual symbols. Sure. Mm -hmm. In particular. And that's why being an esoteric cartographer, making visual diagrams works really well with this style because it's a visionary mode of uh, transmission
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay um, so from my view
0: my father is a Christian my mother is more on the Buddhist side of things me personally I'm very interested in all kinds of traditions study all different kinds of traditions I train also as of this year with uh, Vajrayana Sangha here in South Korea and I also study a lot of the Western esoteric tradition but one uh, one thing you do mention in your book is like monism versus, like non immanationism right? So a lot of my experience with the Western um, perhaps religions and what have you are that ha- even the concept of God or monism versus shunyata or complete emptiness, right? Which is beyond you're still thinking of a God when you're saying there's a God and there's me and there's, you know, uh, you're still in that conceptual monism versus complete emptiness. So maybe can you share a little bit about that? Because my understanding is a lot of the Kabbalists, they come from a more,
1: Monistic standpoint, isn't that correct? See, here's the problem. The problem is that if you go beyond monism, Mm -hmm. you're talking about a realization that can't really be communicated conceptually. It's a non-conceptual mode of transmission. So very often, it's very hard to know what view a particular lineage is actually holding Mm -hmm. because their language could be monistic. And the realization of their practices could be far beyond that. Mm-hmm. And the best example I could give you is Hasidus, Hasidic mm-hmm. Kabbalism. Because mm-hmm. if you read Hasidic books, you would think that these guys are monists. But mm-hmm. the okay. actual realization that they transmit is mm-hmm. completely en sof. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, is completely shunyata, like you said, it's com- mm-hmm. completely open and empty. Mm-hmm. And uh, the realization is essentially a realization of nothingness no thingness sure but but yet they're still using this monist language mm-hmm. so you wonder in certain lineages why do they do that mm. you know because certain lineages really are monists and other lineages just use that as an introduction to something else. And it's a tech, the reason they they do that is because it's a technique that first you realize the monad. And then once you've realized the monad you could break through the substantiality of the monad and go further, which Mm -hmm. is beyond writing and beyond words and language. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to address that issue in Mm -hmm. writing. So very often The monism becomes like the training wheels. Right.
0: That's what I was thinking. Is it like, do you see it as almost like you need these? And essentially you have subject object, this sort of dualistic paradigm, right? And then is there sort of the training wheels? That's what I was going to ask. Like a training wheels are like the next sort of baby step paradigm into monism. And then after that, the next step. So it's like two becomes one, becomes zero. That sort of progression.
1: Well, it depends what lineage you're talking about because certain uh-huh. lineages do it that way and other lineages really hold a monist view. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know? so, so it depends who you're talking about. You know, uh-huh. Yes, it's possible to do what you just said. Uh-huh. And the way that it is done in Kabbalah, for example, is there are steps and stages that bring you deeper and deeper into the realization of luminosity, of light, right? And ultimately, you have realization of light itself, luminosity itself, which is generally referred to as a clear light, clear, open light. Clear light is a term that's used for it. Luminosity as devoid of qualities or characteristics, whose brightness is in and of itself completely dark, meaning that once luminosity is realized for what it is, you realize that there's absolutely nothing there. So what is being bright? What is producing the brightness? Well, that realization that there is no thing that is being bright or radiating any or exuding any qualities of itself, you realize that it is totally open and the openness itself is bright by virtue of its resonance its internal resonance, and the resonance isn't attached to anything. So this becomes essentially the point in practice where light falls through itself. Right. And ultimately nullifies the difference between light, which we think of as a positive, and darkness, which we think of as a negative. So positive Mm -hmm. and negative contrasts lose their meaning, and light can no longer be called a positive assertion of something, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And in doing this, what is realized is a sort of bright darkness or dark brightness where light literally falls through itself. And the light that we're talking about here is awareness, Mm -hmm. is is synonymous with awareness. So Mm -hmm. when awareness falls through itself, Mm -hmm. that is where the monism is broken Right. Really, because the monad is a monad of light, essentially. Right, right, right. Yeah. And there's a term for this in Hasidus, because the Hasidic masters, this is what they teach, and the term mm-hmm. is bittal. You become bittal. In other words, you realize the nothingness state. You Say that again? You realize the nothingness ground.
0: Okay, and they call it bittal? Is that what you said? Bittal, yeah. Okay.
1: Bittal is the state of having nullified Mm-hmm. Identity and identification completely, essentially uh, uh, nullifying the conceptual impulse. Okay. Interesting. Which re- like I said before, what the conceptual impulse really does mm-hmm. is it tries to differentiate something mm-hmm. somewhere at some time. Mm-hmm. Like once right. you nullify that habit, the mm-hmm. whole habit field changes utterly and completely i mean this is what vajrayana mm-hmm. does in its generation phase of practice
0: right right generation and then the completion stages of practice where ultimately getting to that state that you were you were just describing basically
1: yeah but you're never going to get to the completion phase if you don't mm-hmm. master the generation phase and the generation oh, yeah. phase yeah. is a matter of changing that emphasis of what the habit field actually means because if you can do it with a a yidam and a pure land you can Mm -hmm. do it with anything Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. right right interesting so i'm curious what so like i I guess i'm more familiar with the eastern side with Vajrayana. you know these sort of like you said the yidam i'm i'm very familiar with these terms but uh, i'm kind of curious like what are in terms of since you had studied Kabbalah for many years, and you've worked with these different um, lineages, wh- what are some of their fundamental, like, <laughs> to, I mean, I guess it might be an unfair comparison, but what's like their generation stage practices you have, you know, in the you of Yidam and what have you, but what are some of the essential methods
1: that they use? Do it with contemplation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. They, they do it uh, like the In the Jewish world, there's very few people addressing these issues, and the majority of the Jewish world, like the majority of the Buddhist world, or a Christian world, or any world, the majority of people are concerned with exoteric concerns, Mm -hmm. right? Those who are concerned with esoteric concerns are a minority, and there's a minority of the minority. Mm -hmm. And there's a minority of the minority of the minority. (laughs) So now you're talking about really Mm -hmm. uh, a highly, uh, uh, a very, very small amount of practitioners in Mm -hmm. these systems. So you got to ask yourself, what does the system itself say? What do the hidden oral traditions say? Mm -hmm. And what do the masters that, that are even beyond that Mm-hmm. saying about their own methodologies mm-hmm. and these mm-hmm. things could differ from each other a lot. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can't ever go by what a, a, a system is telling you because what's a system? Are you talking about the exoteric system, the, the right. esoteric, and that has so many levels to it. Right. At, at a certain point you got to get really specific, you mm-hmm. know, because in, in Kabbalah, like to answer your question in Kabbalah, you would have to be talking with somebody with just a few guys alone in a room, probably (laughs) somewhere, you know, to get an answer to that because the the story you're going to get in the books is going to be nuts. Right. It's going to be exoteric religion with some stupid fairy tale about God giving the Torah to the Jewish people and the Jews are special and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And that's just a bunch of crap.
0: Right. You have the outer, the inner, then the secret, sort of this progression right like the exoteric
1: i mean uh, i have a very kind of severe attitude towards the outer level of mm -hmm. the jewish tradition (laughs) i i i I feel that it's not essentially um productive Mm -hmm.
0: Do, do you get a lot of pushback for your um your sort of take your your teachings on the the subject the subject matter of kabbalah since you are as you mentioned you have sort of a A severe take on the on the exoteric. Do you get a lot of pushback within certain communities, or is that not
1: no? Because Um, Orthodox Jews, their tactic is to ignore you. So I get ignored. Right. (laughs) Like I mean, every group has their own way of behaving. Like the Muslims will kill you, the Jews will ignore you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's their tactic. So I get ignored. (laughs) Okay.
0: That's not a big deal then. Yeah,
1: Yeah. no. Not too bad. Not too bad. Okay. I mean, I live in an Orthodox Jewish area. Okay. And you're located so, in
0: New York City? Is
1: that right? Yeah.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, yeah, I'm definitely interested in checking out your, uh, your the two new books that you have out. The Fountain of Wisdom is one. And what's the title of the other one? Quintessence of Secret Mercury. Okay. Can you share a little bit about that book? Cause we did talk a bit about the fountain of wisdom, but what's the, uh, what's that book about the quintessence of Mercury. would you say it one more time? I'm sorry.
1: Quintessence of secret mercury.
0: Okay. What's uh, what, what's the content of that? What's, what's that about? Well,
1: there are several ways uh, that I do my work. And one way is to talk about the system itself, the symbols and how they articulate the path mm-hmm. That's one way. Another way that I, um, that I express my work is um, through poetic sensations, right? By exploring aesthetic impressions that mirror the progression of the path and actually coincide or correspond to how the symbol systems work in the way that they teach and the way that they instruct um, mind to follow the thread of what's being offered, right? So when I did the Fountain of Wisdom, I had all this material, which was based on these aesthetic impressions that I didn't want to put in that book. So I took that type of material, the, the much more um, um, aesthetically oriented material, okay. which involved prayers and comments in a sort of visionary language. Okay. And I put it in its own book. So the quintessence of secret mercury is basically that plus there is a text called quintessence of secret mercury that I wrote when Mm -hmm. I did a three-year retreat. And when I did a three-year retreat in Brooklyn, uh, I wrote these notes in a notebook and it was just this, this wild influx of, of stuff that was occurring to me. And I didn't even really completely understand it. So it took 10 years For me to edit the material, think about the material, um, revise it a couple of times, Mm -hmm. and put it in the form that I put it in that book, which became, I don't know, 20 or 30 pages. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it actually is the blueprint for the entire system, the way that I teach it was in that text. But at the time, it's funny, because I really didn't even know that. Uh, At the time, I thought I was... Well, I don't know what I thought, but um, so it was a retreat text and I published it in that Mm -hmm. book. I mean, it's really the blueprint for my entire system. So what is my system? My system is just the amalgamation of everything that I've cultivated from my weird collection of influences. Mm -hmm. And it keeps evolving. You know, there are those who put out books that purport to be definitive, okay. right? Like a defi- this is the definitive tradition and its rules and its methodologies, its regulations and all that. I am not doing that. Mm-hmm. What I am doing is essentially just expressing my own practice. Mm-hmm. You know, it is in no way claiming to be a definitive version of anything. You know, um, it is highly provisional as opposed to definitive. It is the ever-changing, self-transforming reflection of my life's work as it evolves. Mm. Okay. That's what my books actually are. With with certain exceptions, like The Fountain of Wisdom, I wrote commentary on the text. So that's a text, and this is the commentary on it. So that's its own thing. But the majority of my work is just my practice on public display. And the reason I'm doing it is because my teachers told me to do it. Mm, okay. Uh,
0: for somebody who's listening to this and you know, they're very interested in what you have to say and they're also pursuing gnosis, um, as far as a starting point in, your, in the books that you have, do you usually recommend one specific book to start out with or are they supposed to meant to be read in some sort of order or um, what, what would you recommend to
1: someone who's interested in checking out your work? No, they're totally non-sequential and uh, you don't have to start with the first book as a matter of fact, I'd really prefer it if you didn't. Because <laughs> well, the first- which one is the first
0: book? The first book is... Well,
1: I mean, I've written a lot of books, but here we're talking about the series that I call The Lightning Flash of Olive,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? So within that Lightning Flash of Olive series, the first one, volume one, was that one that you're holding there, Deep Principles of Kabbalistic Alchemy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that book was written as sort of a... I had to start cataloging the symbols that I work with mm-hmm. and trying to explain them. So I just took every working part of the practices and methodologies that I that I was have been using mm-hmm. and tried to put them together into one place. So it's more like a a resource book or a um, a reference book mm-hmm. in a sense. And there's areas that are more clear than other areas because there's just so much in there. Mm -hmm. As the books progress in the cycle, it becomes more clear Mm -hmm. and concise, but also in a sense more limited, Mm -hmm. right? So I would say that I have no plan for the reader. Okay. Okay. I haven't really considered the reader very much at all. Mm-hmm. I am just essentially expressing my practice. People can make of it what they want. They can derive what they want from it. And that's sort of where my job ends. Okay. Okay. You know, so I, I really don't know. Um, if somebody is pressed to ask me where they should start, my answer, my instinct is usually to say the last book that I wrote. <laughs>
0: right, because that should be, the, that's the most uh, current, that's the most, yeah uh, on your, your, your current level of realization or where you're currently yeah. focused on, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's mm-hmm. also what's on my mind. So if you say, what should I get into? I'll say, well, right now I'm thinking of the last one that I wrote, so start there, because that's the one that I like.
0: <laughs> right, right, oh, that's pretty funny. Um, so there are currently five or six volumes out right now?
1: Uh, the sixth one uh-huh. will be out this spring. Okay. Okay. So there's five out now. There's five out now. Isn't one of
0: them uh out of print or you discontinued it? I think I was trying to look at I don't remember which two of them volume three. Okay, which ones are totally out of print right now? Volume two is
1: out of print and volume three is out of print. Okay, and volume two is uh 32 keys. Is that is that volume two? But that's volume three, and that you know, we're thinking right now of reprinting that one.
0: Okay. Yeah. That seems to be quite a popular one. It's very, very good. Yeah.
1: Um, I think that we're probably going to reprint that comes with a, a set of cards that are used yes. for a practice to learn the system and to learn contemplation. And um, if I do uh, reprint that book, I'm going to revise it a little bit. Okay. And um, there's a few, you know, there's always typos and whatnot, but I think I'm also going to rewrite a few little sections to make them a little more effective. Mm -hmm. And we've already uh, cleaned up the cards. The cards will look a little different as well. Um, So if we put it out, we'll be putting it out also in an eight by 10 format instead of the small format. Okay. So uh, that also, if we do it, will be forthcoming in the spring.
0: Okay, okay what are the best places to check out your work? Is it, you have your website and for people like me or perhaps other listeners who are living overseas, are there, do you have different distribution channels or what do you usually recommend? Cause you know, Amazon, you can get uh, pretty much everything on Amazon, but there's always markup, there's people selling, I'm sure you're out of print stuff for quadruple the price right? of the original. Yeah, I, I,
1: I think that yeah. the um, the shipping situation right now in the world yeah. is making everything extremely expensive And there's no escaping that you're Mm going to pay enormous shipping charges in every uh, venue. Yeah. So I don't know the way around that. Mm -hmm. I do have a European distributor, Mm -hmm. cyclic law distributes my stuff and I have uh, a Canadian distributor Mm -hmm. that's anathema uh, which is also a publisher Mm -hmm. and um, J.D. Holmes uh, carries my stuff. and has out of print titles too. Um, so I don't really know. I think that um, the reason why my stuff gets very expensive, very often the shipping is more expensive than the book. You know, especially yeah. if you're talking about Asia, you know, sure. <laughs> you're talking about shipping costs that might be more than the book is. Sure, sure, sure. You know, which is totally unfair, but I haven't found the solution
0: to it. Right. Right. Exactly. Unless you're lucky like me and you have uh, friends in the military. <laughs> who, yeah. That's that an, like an American address, you know, but yeah, yeah that's, that's
1: not, a very good way to do it because in right. the U S we ship media mail, which is the cheapest possible way you could ship. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay.
0: So you mentioned that, uh, sort of the overlying theme of your work and your life really is pursuing Gnosis, right. Pursuing illumination, pursuing Gnosis. And, uh, you you know, some people are not necessarily interested in that. Maybe they're more into acquiring powers or however you explained it earlier, but perhaps there are a lot of people who are interested in that, or, you know, maybe they go through a phase and they realize that that's actually what they, you know, what they want to focus on. What would you, how would you guide someone or what would you recommend uh, someone at resources or would you have any advice for them uh, if they want to genuinely pursue Gnosis? You, you had mentioned a lot earlier about Uh, a living tradition being very important. So maybe you can sort of share some tips or advice on someone who's actually interested in pursuing Gnosis.
1: I would say if you're interested in pursuing Gnosis, the first step is to intellectually understand the habits of human perception and the human realm Mm -hmm. and what they do to phenomena and Mm -hmm. study the issue. Because in order for you to be interested in something, you have to know what it is that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And you, it, it's, the topic is never gonna make sense unless you first understand the habit field mm-hmm. and what habituation does to reality, mm-hmm. right? Which is divided up into little conceptually digestible pieces and grasps at every little chunk unless you understand that reality, as it's being assumed Mm -hmm. in the conventional or ordinary manner, is a fallacy, Mm -hmm. unless you understand why it can't be trusted and that there might be alternatives to that, The, the impulse towards gnosis won't go anywhere. One has to become not only intellectually aware of how reality is being dimmed down and compressed into a series of um, uh, reactive stances that the mind takes, right? And the mind's habits are essentially reflex reactions to the vastness and incomprehensibility of, of what it doesn't know right? And this is a totally unconscious thing, that that we contract into this diminished, limited view, because the overwhelming, overpowering immensity of, of, of what is possible would crush us. The mind wouldn't be able to withstand a glimpse of reality if it saw reality. So we're born... in a self-protective mode. And I think the way to start is by understanding that and then become curious about the actual nature of reality. That's how you start. You start by becoming curious. What is reality? What knows it and what is being known? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter where you take that inquiry. Like there's no, like, I couldn't tell you, oh, the way to start is to do this or that. No, Mm -hmm. the way to start is being interested in the issue. Mm. Okay. And, and from that point on, it's up to everybody to work it out for themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. If you're genuinely interested in the question, you will uh, follow up accordingly, depending on your propensity to. To follow through. Like, for example, sure. most people don't have a very great propensity to follow through. They're interested in it somewhat or a little. And then the concerns of ordinary life will suck them back into career and family and responsibilities and all that. Sure. Okay. So they will get that amount of inquiry out of it. Mm-hmm. But there are those who are freaks like myself. <laughs> <laughs> right, who are, are so interested in this question mm-hmm. that they're not interested in anything else. Sure. Right. Like once you've discovered that you really don't care about anything but this question, mm-hmm. then you become a serious practitioner. Right. If you right. if you have other interests, how serious could you possibly be?
0: Right. 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 Well, well yeah. If you get a taste of the, of the experience you're talking about, even a small taste can really be something that changes, you know, all of your thoughts, all of your actions, all of your focus. Right. I think it's, I think it's probably easier once you get at least a taste of gnosis or a taste of uh, there was a Tibetan Lama who, who called it like having a taste of the chocolate. Once you have a taste of the yeah. chocolate, everything, everything changes, you know?
1: Right, right, right. You could look at it as uh, the guy who said that might've been, um, uh a a practitioner of mahamudra maybe i don't know that's they talk about the one taste in mahamudra a lot Mm -hmm. but in uh kabbalah we talk about sparks right uh raising uh, uh, um, beds or fields of sparks or a single spark right all it takes is one single spark Mm -hmm. of this non-dual awareness to be realized which is over by the time it started it's over but it changes you, right? Sure. It changes you completely. So just a single spark mm-hmm. is all you need to start the process rolling,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? It's pretty impossible to be that interested if you don't have that tongue tip taste or the single spark arise through serious inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem is that very often the first spark or first series of sparks comes for free you know it just arises spontaneously from your natural inclination and then you chase it and that's where the problem starts because once you start chasing it now it's a contrived activity and Mm -hmm. now you're not raising any more sparks because you're contriving the approach to something that arose spontaneously Mm -hmm. and you know that could take you years to unravel like you could have one little spark you know that something is possible and you chase it in this conceptually contrived manner and years go by and nothing happens.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you have an attachment to that experience an attachment chasing that experience.
1: Yeah. That's very, very common for human beings. Sure. Sure. Most definitely
0: reminds me of uh, doing LSD for the first time and wanting to continuously have that because you, you do sort of experience um, at least on higher doses, right? This sort of, uh, illumination or these very, very um, intense states of awareness and it becomes a thing, but <clears throat> but it's something you have to just keep doing and keep doing. And it's never really stabilized and you're always reliant on this drug or whatever, whatever you're taking. Right. So,
1: well, I could speak to that a little bit <clears throat> as well. Yeah. See my opinion or take on the matter <clears throat> is that psychedelic experience is brain experience Mm -hmm. it's within the nervous system Mm -hmm. and it might overlap with the territory of the mind that realizes the nature of reality but to realize the nature of reality you are no longer trapped in an experience of any kind Mm -hmm. right you're talking about that which is nothingness no experience whatsoever and the luminosity the nature of the luminosity exuded by the incomprehensible becomes what is realized. That's the nature of your own awareness. I don't think that's possible on psychedelics. I think that you could approximate a version of that in your own mind and the the light of your own mind can indicate that certain possibilities are possible.
0: However,
1: I don't think anyone will ever get beyond the point of a suspicion that a dimensionless, substanceless, atemporal set of possibilities is out there to be discovered. Okay. Um, uh, I So I don't think that psychedelics bring you there at all. I think they overlap with the territory and make make a person know what's possible, but it's still brain activity. It's still locked in personal experience or transpersonal experience. And that's a far more limited range. Mm-hmm. So psychedelics will never make a a practice that will never be the basis of a practice. And I tested this out as a teenager a lot. Oh yeah, me too. You know, <laughs> through um, a lot of LSD, DMT. I mean, I grew up thinking that that was going to be a viable practice because I grew up in the seventies and I listened to people (laughs) like Timothy Leary, you know, and I, and I I read Timothy Leary politics of ecstasy and I, I, I took it very, very seriously and I hit a wall with it. And, and it's funny because when you hit a wall with psychedelics, it, it's a very stupid wall. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's the kind of wall that has you uh, um, idealizing rock music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you know, I'm not putting it down. Well, I guess I am putting it down. But um I I think that it is a dead end.
0: Right. Okay.
1: But, but that doesn't mean time. it doesn't mean it's let me just say this one thing. It doesn't mean it's not valuable.
0: Exactly. Because at the same time, without yeah. those experiences, would you really be here on maybe you would, I don't know, but maybe, I don't know either. You don't know, who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, but
1: right, uh, who knows? But I so it yeah. it is. It, it, it's not without its value. It definitely right. has a value, but it is a dead end. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And okay. people will get mad with me, but I think psychedelics are a dead end. Right. Okay. Um, we were talking a little bit about the practice of mystical
0: contemplation and gnosis. Do you see a lot of this as essentially um, sort of undoing yourself or uh, clearing out obscurations, or do you see it as an add on additive process, you're focusing on something, or do you see it as both? I'm, I'm not, not sure thinking. I know what you mean. Okay, okay. So you're talking about perceiving ultimate reality, the process of gnosis, right? Do you see that? And you had mentioned earlier, when I asked you for advice, sort of understanding how the mind works, understanding um, mental uh, habituation and things like that. So do you do you see the spiritual process or the practice as sort of undoing and undoing and unraveling like peeling an onion or more or less like you're adding something or focusing on something or like an additive it's both yeah Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it's both because at the Mm -hmm. same time that you're discovering Mm -hmm. um virtues based Mm -hmm. on the divine which are the virtues of openness and luminosity and the open fullness of The ground of phenomena, the essence of phenomena, at the same time, you are unmaking the constrictive reductive patterns of your own mind, which create a habit field or a version of reality that you think you live in, Mm -hmm. right? Like every time we change the mind, we change the entire world because uh, the version of the world that you're getting is just a consequence of what your mind has allowed you to get. So they, they change together. You and everything around you changes at the same time. Mm-hmm. In Kabbalah, it's worlds and souls. The hishtalshal the chain of creation of worlds and souls. But it's essentially what knows and what is known. Mm-hmm. What knows is what you think is you. What is known is the context in which that supposed you functions, including the sense fields, ideas, abstractions, mm-hmm. you know, emotions, whatever they are. So mm-hmm. yes, they are unmade. And the, the alchemy of it is being able to usurp or utilize what is released from that unmaking mm-hmm. in a way that furthers the inquiry. So obviously, if you unmake the habit patterns of your own mind, there's tremendous energy that is freed now. What happens with that? It doesn't just vanish. That energy goes somewhere. Usually what happens is it goes back into the pattern that was just unmade, creating a loop, (laughs) right? Right. So to avoid that, where people have breakthroughs, and then three weeks later, they're doing the exact same thing again, that's (laughs) a loop, right? (laughs) To avoid that, The alchemy of it is being able to harness and distill the life force from Mm -hmm. the unmaking and being able to uh, keep refining Mm -hmm. that life force in its expression in a trajectory that is proven because the actual trajectory to the person doing it is an unknown. How would we know what we don't know? Right. Right. Well, the the only way is to have a path or a teacher or something that will help shape and guide. Like if this incredible life force has been freed up, what happens to all of it? Well, unless you get some really good advice, you won't know. Right. You Mm -hmm. know, and that's the danger zone heading into the unknown Mm -hmm. is dangerous, mostly because there's because it is unknown because there's no plan Mm -hmm. and this is where it becomes more and more urgent Mm -hmm. that the sources of your inquiry and activity Mm -hmm. become solid and trusted and proven Mm -hmm. and this is why uh one has to do a lot of preparatory work prior to putting oneself in that position Mm -hmm. because if you're in that position you can't you don't have the luxury to stop and think, well, do I really trust this source? Do I I really want to listen to what they're, because in that instance, if you don't, you're going right back where you came from. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um,
0: another thing I'm quite curious about because it's interesting talking to you because you're very immersed in these different traditions, right? Like, uh, most people I chat to are pretty much only immersed in one tradition or one practice or one viewpoint. Right. But, uh, One thing that I've noticed a lot is like through Eastern practices, particularly Vajrayana or Buddhism, a lot of it has to do with, especially Mahayana, a lot of it is we're doing, we're pursuing Gnosis, we're pursuing enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, the Bodhisattva vow. And there's a lot of focus on uh, all sentient life, right? And what I noticed is a lot of the, um, uh, you know, Western practices, when you're talking about, like you said, Hermetic Kabbalah, a lot of it's like doing your true will and the power of you. It's sort of the opposite really right almost the total inverse i guess you would say so uh, i'm kind of curious maybe since you've you know study traditional kabbalah is there this in terms of pursuing gnosis does it seem like that like a for the virtue of all life or is it this sort of me and focus on my own attainment or some things along these lines
1: well let's look at those two models that you just suggested right um one is for the benefit of all beings Mm -hmm. and the other is for the benefit of the self. Mm -hmm. I reject both premises. I reject that there is a self to benefit and I reject that there are other selves to benefit. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So since my concern is with the divine and I don't believe that it could be reified and divided into individual selves Mm -hmm. or, or identities, Uh, The concept of what it means to benefit them is out the window, just like benefiting this so-called self is out the window, because I know that this one doesn't exist. So if this one doesn't exist, none of the others can possibly exist. Mm -hmm. So that leaves us with a very important question. When we said before that when you unmake habit patterns, tremendous life force is released, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that life force in and of itself, the basis of it is luminosity. Mm -hmm. And luminosity is the dynamic force of compassion. Mm -hmm. So one investigates compassion directly by investigating the expression of that which appears. Appearance and awareness are compassion in action. Mm -hmm. The clarity and brilliance of that luminosity is inherently compassionate it doesn't have to do anything. It doesn't have to refrain from doing anything. The nature of its essentiality is co-emergent with what we are calling compassionate resonance. It's compassion for no reason. Mm -hmm. That's the highest view, because if you don't hold a view that you exist or other beings exist, however they appear to, if you realize that the, the mode of exchange, which is the light itself, is inherently compassionate, just holding the view of that bounty of realization. Realization is in and of itself a compassionate act. One spark of realization mm-hmm. does more compassionate action for these so-called other beings than 10,000 social workers released with their little notepads going into the housing projects or whatever. In other words, you could deal with the circumstances of beings, or you could deal with the essentiality of mind itself. And if you could realize the so-called you, the nature of your own mind, on that level, the force of that realization has to affect everything. So in being a practitioner, you're benefiting other beings just by virtue of the, unless you're doing it selfishly, Mm -hmm. which means that you're maintaining the illusion of your own identity. But if you're a true practitioner, you're not doing it for others and you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing Mm -hmm. it for the divine.
0: Okay. That's a very good uh, explanation because uh, often you see the emphasis on others or self and your explanation is sort of obliterating both of those yeah. and seeing the the uh, ultimate underlying oneness and I've, I've had that explained a little bit on the vajrayana side uh sort of like we're doing this for the benefit of all beings who don't exist of their own inherent uh their impermanence basically negating all of the although you're doing it for others the others don't exist does that make sense Sort of. Uh, that's how well, I've had it explained as well. This
1: is the difference between Mahayana and Vajrayana. This is one of the main differences, you mm-hmm. know. And if you want to look into the matter, read some Madhyamaka. Read uh, in the Mahayana. Read Nagarjuna. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, where you could take apart every piece of this argument and realize its inherent emptiness. Sure. You sure. know, and that that makes it extremely clear. Nagarjuna makes it extremely clear. Mm-hmm. That there is no self and there are no others, right? Right. Okay, definitely.
0: Um, You you had mentioned earlier. I think this was before we started recording. um, You were working on a sixth book, and what uh, can you share a little bit about that? What's What's the uh, content of that,
1: and when when do you expect that to be published? It'll be out this spring, and the sixth book Uh, mm -hmm. is is I don't want to say the title yet because that'll (laughs) change it. No spoilers. (laughs) It's. It's essentially going to be like an extended treatise on how the habit field is transformed and what the habit field is actually made of and what the methodology of contemplation is. And it gets into the mechanics Mm -hmm. of what makes a clipa work. A clipa Mm -hmm. is a self-enclosed unit of mental grasping. Mm -hmm. Right? it's very common in Western occultism. Uh, they pronounce it klipoth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a Q. But since there is no T-H sound in Hebrew, and I'm not really sure where that comes from, the, the klipoth, as they call it, I mean, we call it a klipa or a klipot, klipot. in Hebrew. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like a klipa is essentially like a bubble that the mind makes when it grasps at a thing. it could The thing could be itself. The thing could be other than itself. But whatever the mental conception is, it's limited. It has an enclosure. It has a skin or a shell. Kalippa literally means shell. So what my next book does is it articulates how the shells are actually manufactured, how they're penetrated in contemplation, and what is realized in the unmaking of them and what is done with the life force, mm-hmm. right? Because for the most part, the ordinary or conventional view of reality is just composed of these shells. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. So in the fountain of wisdom, a certain term is used. The fountain of wisdom talks about the appearance field mm-hmm. as a foam, right? An agitated foam, like the foam on the, on the wave of, an o- of the ocean. Mm -hmm. right? And what is the foam, but just an agitated water that is made up of little bubbles,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right? And those little bubbles are the klipas. So when we look at each individual instance of mental grasping that reifies and divides uh, substances, places, moments in time, concepts, right? What we are doing is essentially bringing ourselves to the precipice of dealing with a Mm klipa, right? And there's only two directions that you could go. You could maintain that mental package Mm -hmm. uh, and and support it, Mm -hmm. or you could break through it. Mm -hmm. It's, It's really just the only two possibilities there are. Indifference is not an option because indifference is the first one. It's just maintaining it you know, so active support and passive support doesn't matter. Same result. Okay.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I didn't, I've never really studied traditional Kabbalah. And I, I, uh, well, this is not and,
1: traditional Kabbalah. This, this is more like Vajrayana. <laughs>
0: yeah, inter, interesting. Okay. Uh, with the clip off what you're talking about, uh, you know, in the Western tradition, there's like the idea of sort of manipulating them for worldly results and like demonic forces associated with them.
1: Yeah. Are Find the, somebody who's practicing that and ask them how it's going.
0: <laughs> yeah that's pretty funny but uh your usage of it is sort of uh based on these sort of uh, habits and mental processes and almost like is that? yes how you it? it's
1: exactly the same
0: okay interesting oh that sounds very yeah, uh, yeah i look forward to uh checking out that book it sounds very interesting. yeah
1: that's why i said that it's more like Vajrayana because what they do with the kleshas is the same as the Clipus. okay okay interesting yeah.
0: Um, All right. Are there any other projects you're working on, too? I noticed that uh, you do have a. I'm not sure if it's still available, but I saw that you have a um, 32 keys video course. Is that still going on? Is that still available?
1: Yeah. What I did after I did the 32 keys book is I did a Zoom class, uh, one class for each of the 32 images. And I spoke for an hour or so and I went way beyond the book. So if people are interested, it doesn't even matter really that the book is out of print because you could get this online for a nominal fee. Mm -hmm. My wife handles all of the books and Mm -hmm. the selling and all that. And I don't even know, I can't even answer the question of how one uh, pays for it or any of that. I have no idea, but I know that it's being sold and is available Mm -hmm. and um. We put graphics and like little animation parts mm-hmm. in there as well. Mm-hmm. So there's images and a little box with me talking, but you're looking at the image and you're looking at supplementary images that support it. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's a good way to learn that material possibly better than the book. Okay. Okay. And it's still available, you said? You can still... Um... Oh, it's in, you know in perpetuity. Oh, it's continuously
0: going. Okay. Yeah. It's a website. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. And, it, it, and you get modules
1: for each key, basically. Yes. You could get them individually or you could buy them all, I believe. Okay. Yes. Okay. But to get okay. them individually, what you get is essentially an hour of teaching on each key mm-hmm. um, as the Zoom class was. And the Zoom class was interesting. It's the first time I ever did anything like that. Um, and I don't like teaching very much, but it came out <laughs> pretty good.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, Well, you're a great writer, um, and uh, that Zoom class definitely sounds interesting, but you're not really interested in doing more um, projects like that, like public lectures or even these Zoom sort of online lectures. Do you have any more uh, plans
1: for things like that or not really? I'm not even particularly interested in going out in public. (laughs) You know, I mean, I live a retreat life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know I don't like doing public things, but I do them occasionally. And I, I try to do them for good reason. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I might do, I might do any of these things again, but it's not my, my inclination. It's not my, uh, my first inclination. My first inclination is to, to do my work in private and to just keep working, you know, and just to stay in that state of working all the time. I don't have other interests. Sure. You know, I just do my work. And that's a retreat lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But um, the idea of developing the work, Mm -hmm. you know, this funny thing about teaching is that sometimes you develop the work in really unexpected ways when you're talking Mm -hmm. to another person. And Mm -hmm. I've gotten a lot of benefit uh, from stuff coming up, Mm -hmm. like in the Zoom class, I figured a bunch of stuff out in a totally different way Mm -hmm. because I was talking to somebody. And that, that's a really weird thing, because when you're alone in a room, you, you really don't have other points of view mixed in. Right, right. You know, so so these these strange, so I i don't rule it out at all, because it's interesting, but I don't tend to like it. But I'm not doing this because I like it. <laughs> in sure. the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm teaching- not doing any of it because I like it.
0: Yeah, I feel like the teacher learns more than the student. I mean, have just having students and having to explain things in different ways and getting questions, that inherently gives you new perspective and insights and almost different angles, right?
1: It can if you get lucky.
0: Yeah, if you, yeah, yeah, if you get good questions and good students, I suppose, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it can, but it could also, you know, waste your time as well. I mean, yeah. most people who set themselves up as a teacher... Mm-hmm are really interested in the role of being a teacher. That's, I mean, it's a trap. Mm-hmm. Once you see yourself as a teacher, it's like an egocentric thing at that point.
0: So, so know, if I give you money, you're not gonna give me some
1: gnosis on the side? <laughs> well, the whole thing is like- guarantee it. <laughs> you know, we live in a world where that's an actual, you know, really important question, sure. you know? And, and the thing of it is like, I sell books, I sell these little videos and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So am I doing that by virtue of the commerce aspect? No, I think commerce is fine. I think capitalism is fine. One has to sustain, that's how things are set up. The question is a question of what you identify with. And it's the same thing with retreat, you know, because you don't have to go to some special place up in a mountain or in a cave to be a retreat. Retreat is in the mind. I did three years of retreat, solitary, silent retreat in Brooklyn, in an apartment, right? With tons of noise going on on the street outside of me. Like, it doesn't matter where you are. It's it's all in the mind. You could be in retreat and have a family. You could be in retreat and and live in the city. It does not matter. By the same token, you could be in a cave and it would be a total disaster. Mm -hmm. And you'd get nothing. So obviously it's different than what people think, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, very different and, and retreat practitioners are not respected in this culture. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, most retreat practitioners, if, if their life would be exposed to the great majority of people, they would say, Oh, that's an agoraphobic.
0: (laughs) Well, I think people see that as um, uh, like escapism
1: basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it could be. Sure. I mean, they could be they could make that accusation and it might be correct Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. it might be something else. But what we're talking about when it works out is so rare Mm -hmm. that there's no model for that. Mm -hmm. So most people wouldn't recognize it anyway because it's such an unheard of thing. Sure. But you know, all the traditions that I'm into have some version of this. Mm -hmm. so it's obviously still alive it still goes on and there's a long chain and lineage going way way back of people doing this Mm -hmm.
0: um yes yes do you see that um it's do you think self-initiation or self the pursuit of doing it on your own is do you see that as being completely invalid or completely impossible do you Do you see that you basically do need a lineage or transmission or a living teacher, or do you think that it is possible that one can pursue this on their own?
1: I think at a certain point in Mm -hmm. one's, it might be fine to work that way for quite a bit of one's life, but at a certain point, you're going to need the benefit of something beyond your own mind.
0: Mm Okay. Okay. Um, I did mention earlier, I think when we're off air that these books are just amazing and Thank you. I, I do have a lot of books, but they're just so well crafted, and the artwork in them is just unbelievable, right? Um, one thing I'm curious: would you ever are you did you ever consider releasing eBooks, or is that something that you would never? Is that uh, blasphemous <laughs> the release? Well, of I, yeah,
1: I mean i I don't really even know what that is. You know, I mean i I, I did some books with a big publisher. I did some books with Inner Traditions Press. And I do believe that they sell those. Mm-hmm. Um, my first book I ever wrote, Kabbalistic Mirror of Genesis, I think you could get as an as an ebook. Right. And I think uh, there's another one called uh, Awakening... Yeah, Awakening Ground. That's available, I
0: think, in e-book as well, uh, I believe.
1: Awakening Ground is my least favorite thing that I ever did. Oh, interesting. Okay, Why is that? <laughs> because... I wrote Kabbalistic Mirror of Genesis, my first book, at a really um, uh, highly charged, very specific point in my life. And it, it really opened up a lot of doors for me. And I really stand behind that book. I think that's a really great book. Mm-hmm. And I put, or there's a publisher in Scotland called Dot Press, and mm-hmm. Dot Press put it out. And the run was relatively small. And eventually it, we sold it to inner traditions. So Intertraditions was going to do the second edition and keep it in print. That worked out pretty good. But in the, the interim period, I made a two book deal with them. Mm -hmm. And um, the second book, which became Awakening Ground um, became really rough because they insisted that I use, that I work with their people. Mm -hmm. And that I, don't play well with others. <laughs> okay. So, uh-huh. so what came out was a little bit compromised in my mind because it wasn't like, you know, a spontaneous organic thing that I made. It was a composite created with others. Sure. Sure. And now you have a lot
0: more uh, autonomy. You, are, is, are your books self-published or you're going through a... Um...
1: I didn't really look at who who's the publisher, but. uh but yeah, I, it's, it's, they're essentially self-published. Well, okay. the publisher is my wife and my wife um, has 30 years publishing experience. She worked for Time Inc. and uh, Random House. And, you know, she's got 30 years of being an art director and a designer of books in print. So she's responsible for the way that they look and mm-hmm. the way that they're sold. I mean, she really knows what she's doing and I just leave it to her. Okay. Okay.
0: Well, I think we've pretty much, we covered a lot of ground here. We're looking at about 90 minutes, but uh, if there's anything else that, uh, any other other things you want to mention or
1: any other projects you have coming up? Well, I appreciated the fact that you did um, an interview with my good friend, Greg Kaminsky.
0: Oh yes. Yes. That was a great, uh, <laughs> it was just as hard to line up the times, you know, <laughs> because of the time zone difference, but uh, yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed talking with them and I did, um, I did read his book uh, "Pronouns," which was a great yep. book. I definitely yep. recommend that as well. Um, and yeah, that was a great conversation.
1: Well, Greg's uh, in my lineage. You know, he uh, he he. We share the same community and the same root teacher.
0: Oh, that's great! And uh, it was good for me to read that book because I am working on a lot of the um, preliminary practices with my local group here. My local. Oh, you're doing group. Nandro. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so that it's very, um, it's a very, it's a good timing to read his book. Yeah, definitely. very, very uh, Well,
1: Nangdro is, you know, a very, very misunderstood thing. And mm-hmm. it was really important for him to write that book, because it's so rare that people give the kind of respect to Nangdro that it truly deserves. I mean, sure. true, true Nandro is every bit as potent a Tantric practice as generation phase, and people think of it as like, oh, you're just getting the preliminaries over with, you know, it, <laughs> right. it's less important, it is not less important, it is no, equally no, no. as important, exactly, and mm-hmm. should be respected as such. And it's just incredibly profound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nangdro is incredibly profound, mm-hmm. and um, Greg is a really good person to talk about that because his Nangdro. I mean, so I was there while he was doing it. And, you know, he was doing it in a sort of an ordinary manner and he was stopped and had to do it all over again. You know, right, that's you common. like if you, you got a really good, red hot teacher, if your Nongdro is not kicking ass, you got to go back to one, right. right. You got to go back to step one. And that is devastating because you just put in all this effort. You went out of your mind. Now you're told to do it all over again. Mm-hmm. So seeing that was because it's so great because his nangdro became mm-hmm. just brilliant. His right. his nangdro practice, he was he was practicing nangdro on a very high level. Mm. You know, it, it's really wonderful to see. And he wrote he wrote a great book on
0: it. I mean, uh, I I did regret that I read the book after the interview. I think I had just bought it right when I interviewed him, but uh uh, definitely I'll have to do a round two with him eventually, and he does have a new book coming out that he mentioned. So that'll be a good time, yes. I guess, for that. So
1: mm-hmm. yes, Gre- Greg, uh, I'm really happy that uh, he's doing podcasts and things, and people getting are getting exposed to him because um, mm-hmm. he and I share certain uh, fundamental agreements about Western esotericism mm-hmm. that we've talked about, mm-hmm. such as the fact that. Um, wisdom or Gnostic realization very often is mentioned, but is not the point of the practice. And that should be talked about. When is it the point of the practice? When is it accompanying something else? When is it overshadowed by other things? And what are these agendas? What are the views attached to these agendas? If people don't get extremely clear Mm -hmm. about what they're doing and why they're doing it, which is rare in Western occultism, Mm -hmm they end up mushing a lot of things together and getting a mixed bag that they don't really know what's in the bag.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, uh, the uh, in general, uh, we're talking about Hermetic Kabbalah and Thelema and Golden Dawn. In general, it's sort of a hodgepodge of different, you know, practices. You have evocation, invocation, this and that, right? But it seems like it seems like the map overall is, you know, if you look at, let's say, Thelema, for example, right? Um, what is like at the top of it it's crossing the abyss and going into sort of emptiness right however do you really think so i mean is that's what the map according to the map i don't know i don't know yeah however um yeah however there is it's so much of a hodgepodge of practices that what are you i mean you can get sort of lost in just the amount of different things and practices and what have you right it's not it's not like you're saying you're uh, being one point pointed towards gnosis requires you to be one pointed towards this specific thing. Whereas if you're doing, you know, a hundred different other things, it's sort of hard to really pick, pick up momentum. And,
1: you know, the funny thing about what I'm saying is I'm actually very, I'm actually not departing that much from what you're saying. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that gnosis is the basis of one's magic. Mm-hmm. I am not saying that magic is not a part of path Mm -hmm. and its practice. Mm -hmm. I I certainly do believe that it is. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think any magic is possible without some degree of realization. Sure. So if one understands the structure about how this works, what I'm actually saying is that one's realization to whatever degree that it has been realized Mm -hmm. is the actual foundation of one's magic. The magic expresses it. So if you have no realization, you're not even really sure what it is, how can magic be anything other than a contrived conventional activity mm-hmm. where you want to get laid or get some money or win your court case? <laughs> sure, 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 sure,
2: sure.
1: But, but if it's a consequence and an expression of your realization, mm-hmm. the entire universe is magic. And the right. presentation and display of phenomena itself is Inherently magical,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and in, inherently brilliant, and full of openness, fullness, luminosity that can be shaped and and tuned and sipped like a right. like a bee sips nectar from a flower. You know, it becomes mm-hmm. it feeds the gnosis, and the gnosis feeds it, and mm-hmm. living a life becomes a magical act.
0: Yeah, definitely, it's the uh, the perspective that really. Uh, the paradigm you're coming from is important for sure. Right. Seeing everything as magical and having that sort of worldview versus, you know, I'm doing this all for myself or what would you say earlier to win a court case or whatever, whatever. Well, what I'm saying is so that, that, that one kind of a needs to, world view. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I'm just saying one needs to be extremely clear about the foundation and the basis for this. Sure. That the view, sure. the foundational view has to be expressed very, very clearly and understood very, very clearly in mm-hmm. order for it to actually work.
0: Oh, most definitely. most definitely. Yeah.
1: And the problem is the muddiness of that view and how that view uh, is very confused and should be resolved initially in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why yeah. one does what they're doing
0: most definitely most definitely for me you know a lot of the western esoteric practices for me one practice that's extremely powerful is Enochian magic and that is ultimately for me as a, a part of my practice of gnosis and uh, sort of unraveling myself and revelation and what have you but uh, i do see i do see just you know on the internet and here and there it's all, all of these books and this like new age uh, you know cat magic or <laughs> get a girlfriend magic it's you know it seems like the market itself is sort of contrived and mixed with uh a bunch of junk i guess you would say i don't know i don't
1: know how, how yes, else describe it really yeah. but the junk that you're talking about yeah. is yeah. the human realm itself i mean the human oh, sure. realm itself is nothing but a bunch of uh mm-hmm. confused desires uh uh that don't have a, a clear-cut uh end point, sure. you know, or resolution point you know, it, everything in the human realm suffers from the same basic confusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, everything, everything, e- even the most noble concerns mm-hmm. uh, uh, fall to the lowest possible level ultimately mm-hmm. because the fundamental issues of what is phenomena, what is reality has not been dealt with.
0: Sure, 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 sure. So you're sort of swimming in the muck, right? <laughs> so to well,
1: speak. Um, yeah. it doesn't mean that you can't experience... pleasures and pains and the ups and downs and Mm -hmm. and uh, carve out for yourself a life that might not be too bad that is indeed inevitably possible for Mm -hmm. a human being Mm -hmm. however it doesn't come close to the issues of what is what is a practice in a mystical or esoteric sense you know Mm -hmm. um the the main thing is being able to ask the question and ask it very clearly and inquire as deeply as possible. What is it that is being known and what knows it? Mm. I mean, it really just comes down to that. Beyond that, it's the fabrication of side issues, side concerns, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, of which that's basically everything that's taught in a university, everything in the media, everything in so-called ordinary life would be sure. jumbled together in this way. Because we think that it's real. We think we think that it is how it appears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <coughs> we mm-hmm. think that the appearances on a superficial level of reality are true. Right. So right. unless you question that, you know, where's the door?
0: Right. Sleepwalking, basically. Right.
1: Yes. Well, that's the status quo. Um, and I'm not saying that, that people who do that are bad people. Mm-hmm. I don't want that to be misinterpreted. That's why we have compassion for them. Mm-hmm. But if we take that compassion a little further, we realize where is the them? Where's right. the you that sees the them? Right, right, right. You know? mm-hmm. So compa- but on the before we get to that point, mm-hmm. sure we should have compassion for suffering beings who are confused about mm-hmm. what makes them happy.
0: Right. Most definitely, most definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm definitely going to try to grab the. I, I, I'm i really interested in your Fountain of Wisdom book, and as well as the other one that you have out. So I'll, I'm definitely going to grab those, and uh, hopefully, when your next book comes out under the, uh, you know, <laughs> there's no title yet, as you mentioned, right? But it's volume six. Is that right, you? Well, there is a title. I'm just withholding
1: it from <laughs> public view for the time yeah. being. Yeah, but it's huh. going to be volume six, and the the I should say also that I'm going to be putting out these volumes for the rest of this lifetime. Okay. And I believe it's a long story, but I believe that I'll live another 12 years or so. Mm-hmm. And I'll just be putting out volumes for the next 10, 12 years,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and then I'll, then I'll die. No more volumes. Right. But, um, <laughs> until then I'm going to keep putting them out.
0: Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I mean, uh, hopefully when the next one comes out, um, if you're, if you're interested, we could do a round two and I'll try to read the book, you know, read the book and have a discussion based on that. That'd be great.
1: Yeah, I I would say that um, the fountain of wisdom uh, (laughs) is, is probably not a good place for people to start. Okay. You know, because when you ask me which book should they start with, if you start with Fountain of Wisdom, that is a very, very difficult undertaking. Okay. The Fountain of Wisdom makes the Zohar look like a comic book in terms of how difficult it is. Okay. It is probably the most difficult Kabbalistic text that there is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can't think of anything that tougher to crack than Fountain of Wisdom. Okay okay i mean it's almost incomprehensible it is literally incomprehensible that's why i wrote commentary that's why it requires commentary
0: mm.
1: okay okay it seems like a lot of people
0: the uh, 32 keys seems like a pretty good place to start for a lot of people right yeah
1: and i think we will reprint it but i think people yeah. can just start anytime they want with the videos
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and uh that gives you even more information than the book so yeah that could be my official answer start there mm-hmm. okay. okay why that's not good. All
0: right. Well, uh, I think we can uh, call it a day here because it's about midnight on my end. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, sorry sure. for uh, the scheduling. It's it's always a tough thing, but uh, glad. No, it to worked play. out fine. Oh, that's it worked great. out that's fine. And great. if you want to
1: use the video portion, you know YouTube or something, you know, feel free. You don't even have to ask. Do whatever you want with it. Okay. So where can people find you
0: online? What uh, are you on social media uh, websites? Where can people find you? And I'll, I'll include all the links that you uh, want in the show notes too.
1: Yes, there are three primary ways. There's my website, which is under my name, David Chaim Smith, my main website. Mm-hmm. Then we have a special website for 32 keys. Okay. You know, that gives you a link to the videos. And uh, I don't know, I have, whatever my wife put in it. <laughs> and then there's the, the Facebook page, which my wife also runs. Okay. Okay. And your Instagram um, too, I think. Uh, yes, she does that, that too. Yeah, she does all okay. of that. People okay. think that they're interacting with me. They're actually interacting with her.
0: Right. right. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, you're, you're not one to be online and I'm uh, updating your Instagram and Facebook all the time. Right?
1: Well, I used to be. I used to be. Okay. I used to do. But, oh. you know, um, the more I practice, the more I focus on my work, the better things are for me um years ago like 10 years ago i was on facebook all the time and i've got just a naturally disagreeable personality so the worst parts of my personality came out then i realized you know fuck this i'm not gonna (laughs) i'm I'm just gonna like if this brings out this crap in me i'm just not gonna do it at all Mm -hmm. so i stopped completely okay because it, it just it made my life so much worse (laughs)
0: right right well there are yeah especially if you look at comment sections on like youtube videos yeah it's oh yeah the comment uh, comments
1: on on facebook yeah that was the demise that's basically (laughs) the clip-off right (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah oh well it's worse than that it's a hell realm right
0: right. exactly
1: it's a literal hell realm the comments sections where Mm -hmm. people fight with each other and argue with each other is a literal hell realm
0: Mm -hmm. okay Um, do you, do you, uh, do you ever train students or do you have people that reach out to you? Never. Okay. But you do have the zoom course and that's an ongoing thing where no, um, no, no, that's over. Oh, it's over. Okay. Okay. But during that, no, I
1: I did all 32 keys. No, I don't, I don't ever get involved with the individual practices of other people.
0: Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. But during the zoom course, people who were part of that, they could ask you questions. And, uh, it was, it was an interactive thing, kind of like a, a class like that.
2: That was,
1: the, that was the idea, but you know,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I'm really not that interested in getting involved with people's uh, issues. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. You know, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. It's, it's not my job. My job right. is very specific. <laughs> the job that I was given by my lineage, by my teacher uh-huh. to do my work and, and express my work because they, it, it's not like I'm the only one in the world doing this. There's a lot of people like me, but you just don't know that they're there. Right. right. You know, for me to express this,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, is such a huge disruption to begin with. I mean, I could be, you know, doing it and not telling anybody.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So for me to take on somebody else's issues, mm-hmm. like all of a sudden they're coming to me with their problems. Oh my God, that would be horrible. <laughs> I mean, I've got enough to deal with, with my own, practice you know now i gotta contend with somebody else's practice it's like yeah. you know lock the windows i don't want any open windows in the room i'll jump out <laughs> but yeah well you're doing a good service
0: with these books i can tell you that much You know. thank you i'm
1: just i'm just doing what i can this is what i'm wired to do
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. i'm not wired to do anything else just this so you know it's like uh Back, I remember my life back when I used to be interested in other things and do other things. And it wasn't so great. Right, right, right. You're doing, you're doing,
0: uh, you're doing your true will, huh? <laughs> well,
1: right. uh, we could talk about that you know, if you want. <laughs> well, what, is, what is the true
0: will in your opinion? Ego. It's the ego. If, someone, if,
1: if someone uses the term will, they're talking about their ego.
0: Okay. It's not some sort of, uh, do you see there being a higher life purpose or mission or something like that?
1: Like, Who for is example, the one that would have that trajectory?
0: Oh, oh, yeah, okay. There is no
1: self to have that. Uh, who, who, who is the one that has the trajectory? Yeah. If there is a someone, then you're talking about identity. An ego, right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, if it's reified as an identity, it becomes ego but the mm-hmm. identification itself is just a reflex. So uh, I'm not disputing that there is a trajectory, but who holds the trajectory? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I but, think that you could make the same case for any being. What is a being? I'm not saying that beings don't appear and beings aren't expressed. Of course, beings appear, mm-hmm. but what is, what is a being? Right. You know what is a wisdom being? What is a conventional being?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like if you're a Vajrayana practitioner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the wisdom beings, the Yidams, mm-hmm. of your lineage, those are wisdom beings. What's that? Are they self-existent, autonomous, egocentric units? No. No. They're no. presentations of of the truth, of the expression mm-hmm. of what that really is. Well, sure. we're told that that's that doesn't just apply to them sure that's us
2: exactly we're
1: we're aspiring to be like that realizing that we're like that so right so where is the will in that does Vajrasattva have a will Mm. yeah good point good point you know does 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 vajra manifest his true will (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah well no yeah i see i see where you're getting there yeah
1: yeah so to me a discussion of the true will is a discussion of human psychology and nothing beyond that. Okay.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting you're bringing in this um, uh, strong emphasis on gnosis into um, sort of this occult or Western esoteric community, right? As you mentioned that, uh, while we're talking, there's just so much other kind of things out there, but uh, to sort of bring back Because it does feel like to a degree, I was talking with Greg on on our podcast, that there are, and his new book is kind of covering, you know, there there are traditions, there are Western esoteric traditions that are focused on Gnosis. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. certainly are. Yeah, it's not like it doesn't exist, but perhaps in um, modern occult uh, groups or um, uh, books or what have you, that's sort of not become the main focus, right?
1: Well, uh, the mystical traditions that really hold this in a living, complete form, it Mm -hmm. exists in certain forms of Hasidus and certain forms of Kabbalah. It exists in Sufism, in certain schools of mystical Christianity.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But when you're talking about the Western esoteric tradition, Mm -hmm. in particular, Western occultism that involves itself in magic, Mm -hmm. I think that one has to ask the question of what is the real end game? What is the concern? And there's a couple of people bringing mystical concerns into the symbol systems of Western esoterica mm-hmm. around now. It's not just me. Greg's doing it. I think to a certain extent, to a great extent, Craig Williams is doing it mm-hmm. as well. I'm, not, I'm um, not
0: familiar with him.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's, um, he's, he's one of the people that Greg and I feel is sort of in the conversation with us.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, he's, a, he's, he's an, an author process. or a podcaster? Yeah.
1: yeah, he's an author. He, he okay. writes esoteric books okay. a, a, and, and deals with many of these questions as well from a very different angle. Okay. So, so it's just, I'd have to think about it, but there are a few people trying to expand the Western mm-hmm. esoteric symbol vocabulary to include mystical issues in a very clear way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? okay. it's, it's not entirely unheard of it's just rare Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. um as far as right now it seems like sorcery is quite the most popular thing, such as like the uh greek magical papyri and uh things along these lines do you see as you mentioned having the view having the sort of mystical view the magical view is important do you see these things as being uh oh gotta call
1: no just ignore that that's Okay, uh... okay Do,
0: do, you see, uh, you, do you see those sort of uh, sorcery and things along these lines as being just a waste of time, or just uh, not worth pursuing, or do you see them as being useful given having having a with having a certain understanding or a certain intention?
1: I'm not writing off anything. If mm-hmm. somebody approaches those technologies with a view that is based in realization, mm-hmm. then they could be you know fantastically effective, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they're not, then they won't be. If you Mm -hmm. approach something like that from a conventional point of view, it'll just be a conventional activity. But Mm -hmm. if you approach that from the point of view of authentic realization, I mean, anything is possible. So I wouldn't discount anything Mm
2: -hmm.
1: as far as methodologies are concerned. I don't think methodologies are necessarily good or bad. They're a tool of the operating system. Mm, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, that's
0: a good explanation. Very good explanation. All right, well, uh, I think we covered a lot of ground here. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. And hopefully, hopefully, we can have another discussion sometime soon. Um, after, ch- after your new book comes out, that'd be great. Definitely.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. Ryan. Yeah. It, was yeah, yeah, and, it was a pleasure. Yeah, uh, it was a pleasure for me too. I, I look yeah. forward to all the thalamites that I've uh, pissed off <laughs> yeah, yeah. because I because know. i said something bad about the true will
0: <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> you're gonna get some hate mail maybe right
1: <laughs> i don't know what else is new
0: yeah well it's lucky you're not on facebook and instagram all day right <laughs> you don't
1: hey, I've, I've i've gotten the worst of that so you know mm-hmm. i'm used to it
0: right right, right. well i did have a uh... He was a great guy. I had Lon Milo Duquette on the last podcast, and he was a great guest, you know.
1: i I uh
0: I like to keep my feet in different, you know, what, what would you say? What's the expression? Hand in multiple pots. I don't know if I'm saying that. Right.
1: right. Well, well, Lon yeah. is very funny.
0: Yeah, he's a he's a sweet guy. Very uh yeah, he's a but gym he's, of a gym of a person, I would say.
1: Yeah. He's got an amazing sense of humor. So, you know, he's always entertaining and lively and and, and- Oh, can you hear me? Yeah.
0: Okay. okay. Oh, you froze for about three seconds. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's a very, very sweet guy. Very sweet guy. One thing, though, uh, I remember when I was talking to Greg, he said there are no, in his view, or maybe just his experience, he said there are no illuminated um, individuals in Western, in the Western, uh, I don't know what he's referring to, maybe the Golden Dawn or Thalema or practices like that, perhaps. But just from, in, from, from my experience, interacting with Lon, he seemed very... Awake, very illuminated, you know, and whether that's to, due to his bhāmik practices or his general life experiences or meditations, I don't know, but I would say that um, that he, he seemed very, you know, there's a light on well, there.
1: Mm-hmm. The real question, when you say uh, Western, is what what do you classify as Western at that point? Where is the dividing line between Western and Eastern at that point? See, I don't really see those divisions mm-hmm. as Having real clear-cut boundaries, because Sufism is Sufism, Eastern or Western. Kabbalah is Kabbalah, sure. Eastern or Western. You know, there were Jews in Afghanistan a thousand years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and they were mixing in virtues from traditions like Sufism and and even Vajrayana, right? Uh, in, like in th- stone's throw from the Swat Valley, where where. Right. Vajrayana- born so where is the boundary like there were there were nestorian christians esoteric christians Mm -hmm. in pakistan a thousand years ago
0: exactly exactly you know
1: and they they crossbred with these other mystical systems Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you know there are lineages i mean we only generally find out about the most exoteric versions of these things the real esoteric versions are highly syncretic sure most definitely. You know, and they get forgotten about. So, I mean, you go back to the 13th century. Oh, my God. The, the explosion of mystical activity that was going on in the 13th century mm-hmm. where so-called Hindus, so-called Buddhists, so-called Muslims, so-called Jews were talking mm-hmm. to each other and mixing their ideas was enormous. The right? majority of it got lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, we have evidence that it happened and some of it survived.
0: Oh, yeah, most definitely. It is very interesting. Uh, My grandma was very much into Sufism. I remember going to her house and just seeing all these uh, because she grew up in the 60s and that, you know, that whole era. And she was involved in some uh, Sufi groups. And I I did get a chance to kind of connect with them along. This is a long time ago when I was in um, like a freshman in university. And it it always impressed me, the soup, just the uh, the culture, the music, the dancing, the ecstatic love that they, you know, emitted. It was amazing, but I've never really—I mean, since then, I've never really
1: had a chance to connect with any sort of Sufi traditions, unfortunately. Well, but, yeah. the the interesting thing about Sufi realizers mm-hmm. is that in India and mm-hmm. in other places, parts of Iran as well, mm-hmm. a realizer was a realizer, mm-hmm. and a Sufi realizer might have Hindu students, might have Jewish students. Mm-hmm. Might have Christian students. Tajuddin Baba uh, was one. Um, um, there, uh, uh, what was the other one? Um, there was a woman. I can't remember her name. But there, there were a few um, Sufi saints who were just considered realizers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and it just attracted people interested in realization. And system was non-consequential. To right,
0: right. When, when I went to the uh, Sufi event, I don't even remember, it was the thing we met up and they we were doing these dances and they were singing Jewish uh, songs, Christian songs, it, w- it was very,
1: it was mixed all together, you know. The original Sai Baba, not the guy who called himself Sai Baba with the crazy hair and the, and the, the uh, incense, with, the incense, but <laughs> the, the original Sai Baba, Sai Baba of Shirdi mm-hmm. was, had mastered every single one of these systems like mm-hmm. he became realized and had mastered multiple systems and eventually just taught realization, mm-hmm. right? So he wasn't part of any system in that sense. He was himself and attracted students from across the board. Now that's more the model of what I'm interested in. Like realization right. first upfront, regardless of system. The system is just a methodology. That's just what you use on the path,
2: mm-hmm. the
1: realization It's beyond any kind of uh, comprehensible packaging. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I agree.
2: So thank you for the
1: opportunity.